zu verlangen, dass ein unmöglicher Zustand auf dem Weg von friedlichen Revisionen bereinigt wird, um die friedlichen Revisionen konsequent zu verweigern. There were a lot of German prisons also in these prisons where we were, and the German prisons would be taken down to the basement. And then when we, they, they told us, you're not being taken down to the basement, you're here to die, and whether you die by bombs or you die later on, uh, it doesn't matter. And this they told us in, in uh, uh, Bremen and Essen and in Hamburg, they told us that uh, when, during the bombardments, you see, they told us our Germans must be kept alive because we are the super race, we must keep our Germans alive. But you people, you've got to die, you came here to die. And then the, we, we were kept in the cells, and the prisons used to shake terribly. So it was no escape. The voice of Mary Cummins recalling one of the many traumatic and horrendous episodes in her life that happened during the dark years of World War II. Mary Cummins is now in her 80s, and as she looks along the seafront in Clontaff in Dublin's north side, where the Brent geese are huddled on a grassy patch, her mind wanders back to the first time she became aware of soldiers and uniforms and fighting, and that was at the time of the Easter Rising. I do remember 1916, there was, um, I, we, it was a very beautiful warm day, the 24th of April 1916, which happened to be my birthday. And I, my mother and father decided it was a beautiful day and we all went off to Dolly Mount to a picnic. We were about 15 children, my own brothers and sisters, the neighbours' children, and we all went off to Dolly Mount. And when we got over Dolly Mount Bridge, we were stopped by the British, the British, uh, officers and men, they stopped us, so we couldn't go on to the Strand or further on. So they told us there was a rebellion in Dublin. There was a rebellion in Dublin. So we all went back on the tram, back to Fairview and up Richmond Road, you know? I was born Richmond Road, Romcondra, and member of a big family eight brothers and, and a sister and myself and my, my father was civil engineer and we lived in a beautiful place with a lovely waterfall behind, lots of land, a, love, a really a beautiful residence and uh, then from there I went to Fairview School in the National School first and then I was transferred to later on to uh, Eccles Street College in Eccles Street with the Dominican sisters, Dominican nuns and got on very well there in my studies and uh, was very fond of the French language and 
nearly, nearly always first in the class with, with French, was able to recite and sing and talk and calculate and everything in the French language. Following that, when I finished my studies in Eccles Street College, the Reverend Mother at, came one day and asked me about my career. And she suggested that it might do me some good if I went, if I was interested in language, to go to Brussels um, to develop the knowledge of the language. So she got me a post in Brussels with, with the Belgian countess, and this countess was a writer. And uh, I was with her for two years. And as Mary's facility with the French language progressed, so too did her career prospects, and soon she became a translator with the Canadian Embassy in Brussels. Then, the war clouds started to hover over Europe, and in time, the German army invaded the Low Countries, and all was to change. This is the BBC Home Service. The German army invaded Holland and Belgium early this morning by land and by landings from parachutes. The armies of the Low Countries are resisting. An appeal for help has been made to the Allied governments, and Brussels says that Allied troops are moving to their support. Well, some friends of mine uh, got in touch with me. They were friends of mine over the years I had been in Brussels, and they rang me up and asked, asked me to come along. They won't have a chat with me. So they informed me about all this resistance. They told me it was very, very dangerous. And then they, they said to me, oh, have you got an English passport or an Irish passport? And I said I had a, an Irish passport. Oh, they say, that's, that's, that's bien, that's very good. You know, it's très bien, ça. And because they won't suspect you. You'll be wonderful for the resistance because they won't suspect you, you see. And that was it. Now, were you scared when you joined it? You, the young yeah. Irish girl now. Yes, yeah. I was intrigued. I was certainly a bit nervous and a bit frightened about it. But what overruled the whole thing was I'd given my word to these people. And that more or less took over. I, ne I felt that they needed help whether it was to, for out of kindness or whether it was to help them out or anything, they, they didn't, they were going to, they were glad to have me because they told me they would try and find someone else to replace me, as I had accepted to do that only temporary. You wanted to get back to Dublin? I was, oh, still wanted to get back to Ireland. I was still wanting to leave. You see, I'm still wanting to leave. I did all I could to get back. I heard of different routes, go to Spain, go to Portugal, go to France, go into the resistance, get you off that way. But I'd given my word to those people, and that was it. And they were relying on me, and they never found anyone to replace me. How many people were in this group? There were 39 Belgians and myself. 39 Belgians and myself. The, the top man was a French, he was French, and he, he was the chief of the resistance. So I was the only English-speaking person. I was the only person in the group who could, could translate. Uh, they were transmitting messages secretly to England because we were working in collaboration with de Gaulle in London. And these people had this post-emetteur, these uh, transmitters, and they were sending these secret messages. I never knew what was in that particular message. I had to give it to this person unopened. I never saw the message, you see, and then give it to her or him. And, uh, 
they, they, um, they were transmitted to London, concern, movement of troops, what was going on in Brussels, what we were doing in the resistance. We were collect I was collecting ammunition. I get word to say, go down to Mons or go down to some other place in Belgium and say, you have to go to this restaurant and collect two revolvers there. We were forming what you call the White Army. I went to Charleroi, I went to Mons, I went to Ostend, I went to Liège, and I get two or three revolvers in this case, and I bring it back to a certain place in Brussels and just hand it in to my friends, you see. One day, I was in, uh, I had collected two revolvers, and uh, I was in, it went, uh, I went to meet a friend that particular evening, I went into a restaurant, had a very nice uh, dinner in the evening at the Porte de Navier, and uh, I had these two revolvers in my case, and all of a sudden, we were about uh, 50 people in this restaurant, it was a very smart, very posh place, and it was very quiet, and very nice place, and very convenient for me from where I was living. And then um, the Germans came in, about 15, 20 Germans came in, rushed in, they burst in the door, rushed in, and they pointed their finger at different people, about 15 people. They said, Z, 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 you, 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 you come with me. And I was in that group, and they took me up to the local town hall and put me in prison there for the night. From June 40, we were in touch with the goal, May, June 40. And then those people used to send all these messages across, you see, anything at all. The men in our group, they used to go out at night and they had special torches, hand lamps, torches. And these, there, there was, we would get, we, they would get word from London to say a group of English, British officers and men will be flying into a certain spot in, in Belgium. And generally the spot that was cho chosen was a quiet district uh, where there weren't very many Germans. You see, Germans were all over the country, but there were spots they weren't. And these men in our group, they'd watch that, you see, and they'd go out at night when it would be quite dark, and they'd make these men, all British officers men, came over, you see, and they would signal to them with the torch to come down there, you see. And they were, they were, uh, these men uh, were put into, that's why they needed me, you see, because later on, those men were brought into Brussels. They were, they were, they were there as a kind of uh, forming an army against the Nazis, you see. They wanted to be in place, in place. And then they brought a lot of these men, British officer men, to different places, different homes in Brussels. Then they would call on me, and I would go and see these men, and I'd speak to them in English. 
what was going on and what they were to do and all that kind of thing and give them any ammunition we had and was forming kind of a white army. These men were in the how, private houses in, in Brussels, you see, and then if they wanted to go on to France or any other any country, we would give them false passport, false, false identity cards, you see, and I would go there and explain to them what it was and what they were to do. I would denounce them, there's a lot of Germans in such a cafe or in such a place, and they've uh, committed some awful atrocities. I heard they did, and uh, I, w I think I was instrumental, indirectly, of getting some of them killed. I won't say I felt guilty, because war is war. I've talked to a priest about that, and he said, you were in the war. Well, I said, I don't, even in the war, I don't agree killing people. <laughs> but it has to be done. <laughs> I mean, when you're involved, you know, <laughs> what can you do about it? We got a hate for the lashing of the deep freeze line. If you're any deadly washing of the deep. We all know hate for the lashing of the deep freeze line. It's a watching game. One day, the guests at Poe walked into my apartment in Brussels where I was living. And of course, uh, he, he got, uh, I had an apartment in a house belonged to a friend. And this friend gave him the key of my apartment. She had double keys and gave me, gave him the key. And he walked into my apartment. At eight o'clock in the morning, I was in bed. And I woke up with this person looking down at me. I was, wasn't quite awake, shaking me awake. And I realized then it was the Gestapo. He said he was the Gestapo. And then he asked me my name, since he Fräulein Cummins, are you Mademoiselle Cummins? I replied, yes, I was. And I was brought into Brussels to be questioned by uh, uh, one of the top German officials who was in the, who was questioning everybody who had been arrested. We were all arrested the one day, and of course, how it all happened was, somebody had been watching, we had been betrayed. Now, it could have been somebody in the group, and it could not have been there. We never suspected anyone in the group would sell us, but you never know, when you're in a thing like that, you never know what's going to happen. They may want to escape, or they may want to withdraw. You never know what they might do. But apparently it was somebody who was watching the chief, the top man in, the resist in this resistant movement, watching him or where he was living, and finally they burst in one day and he unfortunately hadn't time to escape and he had the names and addresses of all the people who were in the group. Finally, I was brought into a large room and this, this very important-looking German was sitting there. He happened to be top of the police in Brussels and he questioned everybody. And he confronted me with all the members of the group and, of course, I, I always said I didn't know anyone. I always denied. Better to deny and let them find out. Germany calling, Germany calling, Germany calling. Here are the Reichs and the ambush. Station Bremen and Station DXB on the 31-meter band. 
You are about to hear our news in English. We never knew where the other members of the group were. Mm. We were all dispersed into different places. But then when we, when we, left, uh, when we left Brussels on the trains to go to Hamburg, we simply told that we were leaving. We were going to be sent to Hamburg. And after that, we didn't know what was going to happen. We were all taken out. We were all taken out. And we, as I say, none of the people that were in my group were, were on, in that prison and didn't leave with me on the train. They were all dispersed. They were in other prisons. I never saw them again, you see, until we met in Berlin several months later. Well, anyway, we, uh, we were put on the trains to go to Hamburg. And in going to Hamburg, it took a, nearly two and a half days because there was bombardments going on. The war was going on and the constant bombardments when we were in the trains. So the trains used to stop, we say, every few miles because we hadn't been tried. We had to be kept alive. Then when we wanted to get to the toilet, they used to take us out of the trains and we just had to go on the railway lines. And then the first thing we do after that would be go to the pump on the railway line to drink water because we were parched with thirst. We, first of all, we were locked into this cell on the train. We were stuffed in there, just like sardines. We practically no air in, in the, in the uh, cell. And maybe 15 people, uh, maybe 20. It, was, it wasn't such a thing as having a seat for everybody. And finally, uh, we had no, practically no air. And we were locked in there, and there were three guards outside, out, one outside the door, and one at either end of the landings, of the land, the corridor. At the same time, the bombardments were going on very heavily. I used to see, through the bars of the window, I could see the British planes and the, or the tracer bullets going up and all that from the German side, you know, trying to bring them down. And several, there were several, several of them shot down and all that. And finally, one day, after about three weeks, the, the cell door opened and they brought me in a big sack. And in that sack, when I opened it, it was full of gloves full of mud and full of blood belonged to the German aviators who were shot down. Then they brought me in a basin and I had to wash all those gloves so I could say I dabbled in German blood <laughs> in the basin. <laughs> and then when they, they took them out and they dried them, they brought them all back to me and they said that you have to, un you have to cut out the bad fingers all the fingers of the gloves that have been torn, cut them all out and we'll bring you in the wool to suit and you make new fingers. Well, I said to myself, I pity the person's going to wear this, they'd want to have crooked fingers after me because I wasn't a knitter. I couldn't. I managed to knit them. Uh, somehow or another, I managed to put in the, the fingers back in the gloves. And they did that because, you see, that was another humiliation.
after about a month in, in uh, more, more, about five or six weeks in Hamburg, we were taken off to Berlin by train again. And from there we went, we were tried by the high military court. Three of the men were, were condemned to death. We were all condemned to death. Three of the men were beheaded and three were shot and the rest were all dispersed into prisons and camps all over Germany. I was in about 20. For Mary Cummins, this was a sentence that led to four years of a living death in many prisons, including Berlin, Hanover, Cottbus, Dresden, Bremen, Essen and Waldheim, and the dreadful concentration camp at Ravensbrück. The Germans were perpetually thinking of ways and means of torturing people. That was their daily duty, they had to do it. They had to think of ways and means of torturing people. I was beaten, beaten, and I had my hands in a vice, and I had very often a, a revolver on my back, and then there were all, I was under continual threats of being sent to Auschwitz concentration camp uh, to be done away with. And then uh, all, of the, all of the prisons and all of the camps were all the much on the same level. But the, the, the best thing, the worst thing about the camps was there were so many people there that, of course, you were nearer to disease and everything. But where in the prisons, well, you might be have the chance to be isolated from people who had diseases and all kinds of things that you could easily catch because you were very weak yourself in health. I often fainted from hunger, and I often faint, fainted because um, the stress of it. You know, there Which again, camp were you in? Pardon? The Ravensbrück the concentration camp. That was the, that was the worst. That was the appalling place, and that was all barbed wire all around it. You know, and the men there were there was men. There was a men men section of men there as well. You see, and uh, so they they used to talk, put them into a, put them strip the men naked and put them into scalding hot water and then take them out of that and dip them into icy cold water. All that was torture. Another thing they used to do. They used to crush glass and make the men drink this, and of course it created hemorrhages, and they died from that. And there was no end. They, they were tortured, uh, also interfering with their body in many ways, uh, destroying them and taking the man, uh, taking a man, and hold, uh, tying his feet up with his head down for several hours a day. They, there was no end, absolutely no end to the torture. It was, I can hardly describe what it was like. It, cannibals, it was, I don't know, it's very hard to describe the, how, how they could think that some people had their eyes scourged out. There was plenty of rape and there was plenty of people eating one another because they were so hungry. And there there was the there was the loss you see of kindness, loss of, of fellow fellow feeling, consideration. There was none of that. 
You see, the women and the men were sexually deprived. They were deprived sexually and they were deprived emotionally. Deprived every way, at every level that a human being can be at. They were deprived of all that. The company, the, the, deprived of laughter, de deprived of, of anything that was human, anything at all that was, um, you know, living an ordinary kind of life. I was watching this couple, you see, and uh, and uh, suddenly they they started to become very sexually attracted to one another, and of course I understood that and I had great sympathy for them, and then one of the one of them she she took the the arm of the other lady, and she said, "Don't mind," she says, "if I try to eat you." because she says, I'm so hungry, she says, I would eat my own child. I'm so hungry, you know. And the other, the other, the other person said, oh, carry on, I don't mind, because I feel like doing the same myself. But that was, that was very prevalent in, in most of the cases. Well, did this girl actually eat some portion of the other girl? I would think so. Oh, yes, I would say so. I would, I would. And you witnessed that? I saw that, yes, I saw that. It was something appalling, you know. And what was the outcome then? Did she stop after a while, after well, a few bites? she stopped after a while, but the guards came along, you see, and separated them. And that was it. And that, that was... Uh, and uh, they were both, they were both uh, shot. They both shot. They were both shot. You see, it was just as well they were, because they couldn't have gone on. I mean, the hunger was so terrible. See, people went mad, went crazy through hunger. The buffalo dips its nose down the bank, and now it's opening up full power. We are racing across, and side by side with us go racing the other buffaloes, racing for that hell on the other side. The last two years I was there, I was dying little by little, bit by bit, little by little. I was beginning to lose my memory, beginning to be more sick, fainting and vomiting, and all the rest, uh, dysentery and felt really that I was going down and down, little by little, every day. And did you pray? Then, I, I, every day, I just said to the Lord, I said, into thy hands, Lord, I commend my spirit, and thy will be done. And I think of that, oh. It does touch you, you know. It's a terrible thing. And then one day I found a little little bit of a pencil in, in the yard and I picked it up and the guard came along the next day and he looked in through the spy hole in the door of the, of the um, cell and he saw me writing and he opened the door immediately and he said, Cummins, Cummins, Emit, come out, Cummins. I came with him, they put me down in the cellars and I was down there for a month on bread and water. We were deprived of water, deprived of food, and we got, as for food, we got uh, uh, 
three quarters of a litre of mangles, it's similar to yellow turnips, and that was very common. We never saw meat, we never saw vegetables, we never saw milk, sugar, anything like that. And then, you see, there was a jug of water put in each, each cell, each cell. But the people, it, it was only, it would only do for the morning, the water they gave us. There wasn't enough. So we said, what are we going to do? And we were absolutely parched, parched with the thirst. And sometimes the food they gave us at lunchtime was very salty. We suspected that they must have salted it tenfold you know it was so salty and that made us very thirsty but that was in that was a very kind of you know in uh, way of, of of making us suffer more and then of course we needed to drink and then we said what are we going to do so each one said what about our urine we have to drink we die from the thirst we just die we have nothing to drink so we did and it's each one's turn. And then we felt we were drying up. And our lips, our lips, our tongue, my ears, my eyes, my, my, my mouth, my tongue, it seemed to dry, be drying up the more this, this went on. And some women also, they washed their hair in the urine. How you can imagine that, I don't know. Well, you see, they kept telling me that, that I had to be done away with. They classed me in the same category as Jewish ladies. I had to be done away with, they said, the same as the Jewish women or any of the prisoners we have here. They, they, you have been against our country and you've done us a lot of harm, so we have to do away with your people. And I was under this constant threat of sending me off to Auschwitz concentration camp. The whole stay in Germany was torture, from the beginning to the end. Even if, you, even if they didn't beat you up mentally or, uh, or physically, you, you, the whole thing, the torture of hunger, the torture of thirst. For, take those two simple items. And then after that, the torture of being humiliated, just, just called, uh, you know, name anymore, you've just got a number, mine was 75. Uh, that, I mean, humiliation. Then what about striptease? I, many times we triptease and uh, having to get up on, a, we were put up on an apparatus and exposed there and were searching all the orifices of the body, looking for messages and all that. I mean, all those terribly humiliating things and uh, having us go on a toilet for two people on a toilet. I mean, all that's very humiliating, apart from, from the actual physical torture, all those things. They were always thinking up ways and means of uh, torturing people. Sounds of the dying, and sounds of people being beaten, and sounds of people screaming. Uh, then, of course, there were times, and there was absolutely no sound at all. And that, hearing no sound at all, seemed to be even worse than hearing noise, because hearing noise or something, you felt you were more alive. You were in touch with people, there was somebody alive around you. Even if they were screaming, you know, it was, you, 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 were, you were near, it was human. 
the central conditions were, was a, a primitive in the extreme. Um, there was in this particular cell, and I can't remember the place where prison, it was a prison. I can't remember, it was chock-a-block with women. As I say, as the war went on, the cells began to fill up. And um, this was, there was a big tub in this cell. And in that cell, there was blood, there was urine, there was sanitary towels, there was vomit, everything, because most of the time people were sick. And sometimes we couldn't eat the food we got, we just threw it into that. And it was a big wooden tub in the corner of the room. And one day, the guard came in and called me out and said, you get out, Rouse, get out. You, you must pull that, you must pull that wooden tub down to the end of the corridor every morning and empty it at the end and bring it back. You must wash it down there and bring it back. You empty it into a shore at the end of the corridor and bring it back. And so World War II raged on with ferocious tenacity. Battles were won and lost, countries rose and fell. The voices of Churchill, Mussolini and Hitler echoed and re-echoed across Europe. But for prisoners like Mary Cummins, the concentration camps brought little news of winners and losers, except for the odd snippet of information that came their way when new prisoners entered the dark precincts of terror. Never knew the days of the week they were going by. Hours were just hours. Hours went, meant nothing. Minutes meant nothing. Days meant nothing. Weeks meant nothing. Uh, years, months, years meant nothing. We had no communication with the outside world. They never told us anything. We had no calendars. We had no opportunity. We didn't know what year, what was going on, or anything like that. We never knew anything. But we did meet with some. Uh, some. Some of the guards, especially the women guards, were kinder in some way. This is the BBC Home Service. Here is the news, read by Frederick Grisewood. We begin by taking listeners over direct to one of our transmitters in Germany, where Frank Gillard is waiting to speak. East and West have met. At 20 minutes to 5 on Wednesday afternoon, April the 25th, 1945, American troops of General Bradley's 12th Army Group made contact with Soviet elements of Marshal Konyev's 1st Ukrainian Army Group near the German town of Torgau on the Elbe. This is the news for which the whole Allied world has been waiting. And finally, uh, in this place where I was, south of Berlin, um, the Germans, the Americans came in, the, the war was advancing. See, Germany is a very big country, and the war hadn't finished at the same time all over Germany. It was going on in certain parts of Germany. But now, it was going on, and finally, it got to the spot where I was in this place, I forget the name of the place, and the, Germ the Americans came in there, into the prisons. And uh, all, all they, they, they came all over that, that particular quarter into that particular town or village. And, of course, they knew all about the prisons and all the rest. And they came in, and we were all there in the prisons. I didn't know anyone else in these prisons, only myself. And then there was a Polish count, and he was going to, he was going to be executed the next day. And he was in the group. He was released with me, and we were about... We were about 50, 50 released out of this place. And we were all sick as dogs, you know, we were terribly, terribly bad. And the, the Americans gave us, they gave us uh, 
bread, uh, bread, and we could we couldn't eat. We were so used to not eating. The tummy wasn't used to it anymore. He wasn't used to eating. So they took us all out, and when we were about an hour or two away from this place, uh, they they went. It was a suddenly bombardment went on somewhere near where we were. We were heading for Munich, you see, from Berlin to Munich, and in the meantime there was bombardments going on. So we went into a forest, and we were in there for two or three hours. And finally the bombardment ceased and they got word that the war was over in that particular spot near Munich, somewhere around there. And then we went in to Munich and from there went into Switzerland. We stopped in Switzerland, in Bern, and we were in a hotel and God, it's paradise. And the people along, they must have known something about it. And they came, they came to the they came to the railway stations or different places and they gave us they gave us a soap, a toothbrush, toothpaste, a face cloth, a towel, all the things that we hadn't seen for years. The Swiss people were there. We're all very ill, all very weak, and even to talk was an effort. And we were all lying there peacefully, peaceful, and just, you know, astonished that we were released. And, and getting used to the feeling of being in the open air. It seemed, the air seemed too much. We weren't for it ready, psychologically, we weren't ready for it because we were all suffering. I had back trouble, and I had feet trouble, and I had a bit of heart trouble and lung trouble. And, and uh, you see, when I came back, when I arrived up in Paris, I was diagnosed as having the calcification of the spine. And I was kept there with other people for about three weeks. I was in, some of the hotels had been commandeered by the French government, and they turned the hotels into kind of uh, temporary hospitals. And the worst cases stayed there until they were transferred back to their own homes. They gave us money, they gave us food, they gave us clothes. They gave us the medical treatment, and finally, I was transported back by the Americans to Brussels, to Brussels, and I stayed in a very a beautiful castle that was had, was given over, had been offered to the uh, offered to the German the Belgian government to to accommodate the prisoners who were coming back. And then after that, I went before a commission in Brussels, and a medical commission, and I had to have a plaster jacket for six months on me to try and help my back. And after that term of hospitalization in Brussels, Mary Cummins returned home to Dublin. And then she went back again to the Belgian capital for a compensation assessment, which was an incident that added a further change to her life. I won't say the best for yet to be. At the time it was, but it turned out to be the worst to be. I met this gentleman 
a barrister practicing in the courts in Brussels and he was working in the in the Belgian government he was in the department of reconstruction and he was a Bel he was councillor of state in this department and we I remained in Brussels for some time and we I used to we, he was dealing with matters concerning people who had been in the war and I happened to go in and out of his bureau now and again discussing this matter concerning my compensation and discussing I say he was in the Department of Reconstruction. So finally, we became very friendly, and finally, uh, he, he proposed to me. And then I accepted, and I knew him about a year, and he, he introduced me to his people, and finally, uh, we came over to Ireland to be married in Ireland. We were together 20 years. He left me the 20th of July, 1964, he left me. You know, why it was, I don't know. I never knew why he left me. I never knew the reason. He was so nice and so loving at the airport when I, when I left, when he left, embracing me and telling me how good I'd been to him and all that. And, and I was used to him going. The story of Mary Commons, who later became Madame O'Kelly de Galway. Mary is now a sprightly, charming woman in her 80s, whose zest for life goes on with an indomitable spirit that even the horrors of concentration camps could not quench. She lives alone with a lifetime of memories at Clontarf in Dublin's north side, just a couple of miles down from Richmond Road, where she first saw the light of day all those years ago. The body is not made to last forever, and it, the physical state has to deteriorate. That's the normal run of things. Well, I accept that, and I do what I can to help myself on the way, you know. Do what I can, remain optimistic, grateful that I'm alive. I appreciate looking at the moon, the stars that I hadn't seen for four years when I was interned, the stars, the, the smell of new, new, new cut grass, and the, the value, the, the, the joy of water, drink, drinking water. Even drinking water pleases me, you know, to be able to drink pure water when I think of the terrible time that we went through in the prisons and the camps. No, je ne regrette rien. Ça commence à... 